Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. Well, what I do is uh, I look a woman up and down, and I say, Hey, how you doing? And once again, I hope you're doing well, everybody. This is Jim McCarron's back with the good, the bad, and the TV on the Believe Podcast Network. It's the number one podcast network for professionals. Look for and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform, like this one. Check us out on Believe.com as well, where you can find info on advertising on this or any of its many, many podcasts. Now let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV. The year is 1977. When a peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, heads to Washington during the same January month that it snows in Miami. And here's a related odd fact. January of 1977 marks both the coldest January in the contiguous United States and the warmest one in Alaska, dating back to the start when records are kept. In 1977, Elvis Presley and Led Zeppelin each play their last concerts. Three members of Leonard Skinner, including lead singer Ronnie Van Zant, die in a plane crash. Fleetwood Mac's Grammy-winning Rumors and Meatloaf's operatic Bad Out of Hell are released. Meanwhile, the world's first personal computer, the Commodore PET, is demonstrated at the Winter Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago. In 1977, Pele, the soccer star who's now a member of the New York Cosmos, plays his final ever professional soccer game. Ted Turner wins the America's Cup yachting race, and New York's new Yankee, Reggie Jackson, hits three home runs as the Yanks begin their winning run to their first World Series in 15 years. As a prelude to that fall classic, New York City suffers a massive summer blackout three months earlier, resulting in widespread looting. Across the country in 1977, Harvey Milk becomes the first openly gay elected official of any large city in the country when San Francisco elects him as city supervisor. Sadly, Harvey Milk is assassinated just a year later. Voyager 1 and 2 each blast off en route to the far reaches of the solar system, days apart, though two goes first, one goes second. And in 1977, women are integrated into the until-now all-male Marine Corps. The year's top five movies, in reverse order, The Goodbye Girl, Saturday Night Fever, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Smokey and the Bandit, and Star Wars. Meanwhile, in the real-life world, as opposed to the real-life world, singer Anita Bryant is on an anti-gay crusade called Save Our Children. David Berkowitz, also known as Son of Sam, is captured after a year's worth of killings. 165 people die when the Beverly Hills Supper Club goes up in flames in Southgate, Kentucky. And in the first execution, after the reintroduction of the death penalty in the United States, Gary Gilmore is executed by a firing squad in Utah. In 1977, Alex Haley's seminal Ancestry Tracing Roots book, Roots, comes to primetime TV and a massively popular miniseries, tapping into, and in fact furthering, a black power, black identity movement 
that's sweeping across a changing country, changing due to conversations and sometimes confrontation about race and about gender, age, ethnicity, sexuality, economy, and, well, what else you got? In 1977, the United States continues to be a nation divided, as it hasn't been in 100 years, by war, by politics, by outlook, by beliefs, by generation. That's just the reality of the decade, a reality seeping into TV entertainment, too, a business that's acknowledging the changing nature of the country by reflecting it. For survival's sake, it has to. In big ways and small, in the ways stories are written and in the ways they come to life, in its dramas and its sitcom and its movies, in its depictions of doctors and lawyers and cops and doctors and politicians and its nine-to-fivers, in its depiction of its on-screen parents and of their kids, especially its teenagers, about which there are scores of new series. In December of 1977, Washington Post TV critic Tom Shales writes this about an episode of one of them. Quote, Not perfect, not revolutionary, not always deliriously urgent. It's still the most respectable new entertainment series of the season. Consistently, it communicates something about the state of being young, rather than just communicating that it wishes to lure young viewers. And if it romanticizes adolescence through the weekly trials and triumphs of its teenage hero, at least it does so in more ambitious, inquisitive, and authentic ways than the average TV teeny bop. Unquote. The new show is a drama called James at 15. In the episode Shales is writing about, which airs only a month, after so, a month or so after its debut, well, that chronicles how the teenager at the center of the show, James, deals with the death of his best friend. Ronald Rubin's script, says Shales, is perceptive to the rhythms and the moods of youthful friendships and to the privileged isolation of the adolescent. He says that young James is dealing with the tragedy, marks the show with what he sums up as a believable, personal victory. Now, outside of an ABC After School special, the feelings and emotions of teenagers are not exactly the stuff of primetime Happy Days TV in 1977. But James at 15 is eschewing the rules of TV. Perspective and believability are its hallmarks, although some ways it proves to be its downfalls, too, leading to cancellation before the 1977-78 season comes to an end. Long before TV dramas like My So-Called Life and Party of Five come along in the 1990s, and at a time when TV is finally beginning to recognize teenagers as young adults rather than as older children, James at 15 arrives in 1977 and dares to represent a contemporary teenager's real thoughts and real feelings. Starring Lance Kerwin, a teenager himself, it tells of the coming of age of James Hunter in the days and weeks and months after his family's cross-country move from Portland to Boston, where his professor father has taken a new job. The series focuses on James as he tries to settle in, both to a new house and a new neighborhood, both to a new school and a new life. Supplemented by his many big-thinking adolescent daydreams, some of which come to life on screen. 
which may help James, but not so much the convention-bound viewers, it seems. James at 15 starts out as a two-hour movie of the week of the same name, written, in novel, written by novelist Dan Wakefield. It's a pilot that airs on NBC without much expectation on Labor Day night, 1977. It ends up the highest-rated programming of the week on any network. A series order is immediately struck, hurried to air by the end of October to help prop up NBC's struggling Thursday night lineup, which has collapsed since the start of the season. The series version doesn't meet with the kind of stellar ratings that the movie does, but it's sampled and it's admired. It develops a core following. It settles in with what future TV standards will classify as a loyal cult audience. And it's fortified by that TV rarity, near unanimous respect from critics and viewers alike. Both groups appreciating the TV tilt it provides when it comes to primetime programming about the teenager experience. Still, the love and respect only go so far as the weeks go by. And a few weeks in, by the time of that death episode that Shales admires in December, James at 15 lags in viewers, opposite perennial CBS favorite Hawaii Five-0, on the air since the late 1800s, and ABC's new and rising comedy Barney Miller. James at 15 is, and seems stuck, at third choice on the night, by default. Not helping, a change in executive producers and backstage fighting on the show between writer-creator Dan Wakefield and Network NBC. The drama behind the drama reaches a critical point in early 1978 as plans begin for what's to be a special episode of the series, during sweeps, of course, in which James loses his virginity. Now it's to happen on his birthday, thus snuffing out in advance any concerns among watchdog groups, and there are tons of them, these TV is changing too fast and too much days, that NBC is depicting a 15-year-old having sex. This, however, necessitates a title change for the series, already struggling for both an identity and an audience. James at 15 will need to become James at 16 after just four months on the air. But in the end, the thinking is that both so-called events, the title change and, well, the act, will shore up the show's profile and maybe lead to an increase in viewers, so the episode gets underway. But as soon as it does, Wakefield pushes back against network insistence that the 1977 incendiary words birth control in the script be replaced by the more benign wording being responsible. I'm doing air quotes here around the word being responsible. And I'm doing air quotes here around air quotes. Wakefield is also said to disagree strongly with the network's mandate in the show that in the wake of his first sexual experience, James exhibits remorse. So he walks away from both the episode and the series, each of which go on without him. Getting past this backstage dissension and past advertiser skittishness and what must be said as not a small amount of protest letters from the masses due to the content of premarital sex, regardless of age, the James at 16 episode entitled The Gift, in which James loses it, 
airs on February 9th, 1978. But James is the only one who scores. Neither the well-publicized storyline nor its well-covered backstage showdowns, nor, for that matter, the new title, make much of a ratings difference. A ratings difference that NBC is counting on. James at 15 is just never able to regain that movie of the week momentum from the previous September. It's pulled from NBC's lineup in March, and then soon after officially canceled, running out its five remaining episodes that June, when viewership matters less. James never lives to see 17. Decades later, though, James at 15 is still remembered, and it's still held in high regard by the TV industry, as much for what it presents in its too few episodes as for how it helps TV to grow up. James at 15 stands as a noteworthy and important next step in prime time, allowing for the normalization of the teen experience, teens acting and talking like teens. In the 1990s, Dawson's Creek creator Kevin Williamson cites James at 15 as a major influence on his drama, itself applauded for its own realistic depiction of teen lives. He says, Dawson's Creek came out of my desire to do James at 15 for the 90s. That drama was way, way ahead of its time. End quote. And so it was. In a 2020 online appreciation, essayist John Weissman writes this after re-watching the pilot for James at 15. Quote, There are moments when you really appreciate what the show is trying to do and moments where they find nuances of teenage angst and uncertainty that few other shows landed upon before or since. James at 15 does end its run with two Emmy and one Directors Guild nominations. You gotta believe. And hey, this James will be back next week. He ain't got no walking stick. He don't need no ball and chain. If he ain't got no hand to kick, that don't mean nothing to James. Oh, James singing. Oh, James. The people in the street, oh, the pouring of the rain. Is it a feeling in the heart or is it something you can't name? Oh, James singing. Oh, James. The people in the street, oh, the pouring of the rain. Is it a feeling in the heart or is it something? Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.